Welcome back to another episode of The Big Questions. I'm your host, Dylan Riddle. This week, we have a special two-part episode. First, my colleague Clay Lowry, Executive Vice President of Research and Policy at the Institute of International Finance, will be joining us to break down the G20 statement following their extraordinary virtual leaders summit. So Clay, thank you for joining us again. I wanted to go over the recently published five-step policy response plan to COVID-19 that you put together. The plan notably included domestic stimulus, dollar liquidity, World Bank and regional development bank help, trade, protectionism, and the G20. Why don't we start there? Why those five priorities and, and what did you hope to accomplish with this piece? So thank you, Dylan, for having me on again. I think when I was trying to figure this out, and obviously it wasn't just me, I talked to other people at both the Institute as well as outside the Institute, just trying to figure out what are the major steps in which there can be a significant effort on international coordination. The last one we talked about was the G20, which is, of course, one of the major parts of international coordination, but the other parts also require it. The domestic issues are pretty clear. We have a demand problem and a supply problem. And so we need to use the tools that we have available to us, which includes fiscal policy and monetary policy. If we can do that in an internationally coordinated way, that usually proves to be more effective than just acting domestically. But it's first and foremost, you got to start domestically. When we think about dollar liquidity, it's because the dollar is the major currency in the world. And so it is kind of the responsibility, really, of the United States to be thinking about what does the dollar mean and how do we have responsibility in the world for making sure there's liquidity. On the trade side, it's my view that protectionist measures probably in the best of times aren't that great, but in the worst of times, which is where we're facing now, can be devastating. We're going to see, I think, that trade flows are going to fall off pretty significantly because there's not as much economic activity. But let's not add to that burden with government policies. And then finally, just the G20 coming together and coordinating as best as it can. It can use the official bodies like the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, which are there to help emerging market countries as well as developing countries. And also the G20 itself, just kind of looking at different policy actions that they could take to again show this is a global crisis. The idea that we can all solve this individually is wrongheaded. Trying to solve a global crisis using global mechanisms seemed to me a much more sound step. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like in the last few years, right, people have been writing these headlines about multilateralism being on the ropes and not as in vogue as it was a few years ago. But it felt encouraging to see the G20 leaders come together. And obviously, they produced this statement this week. You, in the piece, called for the G20 to put out a short, impactful statement and take many of the actions obviously noted in your piece. How did you read their statement You know, as it relates to what you were hoping for? So I would say I read it in two ways. One, I read it as a positive statement for kind of the reasons you just said, which is here you have the G20 leaders coming together and talking that we do have this global problem and that we are trying to take some actions domestically and internationally to work together through this problem. And I thought that it was important that it came just a day or two after the G7 foreign ministers had broken down over what I would consider to be a ridiculous discussion about what we should be calling this virus. I say ridiculous not because, you know, maybe at some point that's an important thing, but let's face facts. We have people that are suffering economically and suffering health-wise, and it strikes me as strange that we will have a big debate over what to call it. So I thought it was good that the G20 came together and kind of put that issue off to the side. 
In terms of how impactful the discussion was, I would like to have seen it be a little more action-oriented. This is what we think we need to start doing. This is how we're going to task different groups. We didn't see as much of that, but it's still a first step, and we have a long way to go in this crisis. So it's not exactly what I was looking for, but I consider it still a positive overall step forward. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of aspects that you had mentioned that were still mentioned in the statement. I kind of wanted to start with trade, where the G20 says that they reiterate their goal to realize a free, fair, non-discriminatory, transparent, predictable, and stable trade and investment environment. How do you think that squares with the last you know, two years or so of U.S. increasing tariffs and the trade war and trade conflict with both Europe and China, obviously? So it doesn't square very well. Just this Monday, actually, the trade minister's statement that came out kind of expanded upon what the G20 leaders had said last week. And while there's some positive aspects to it, including keeping markets open, it would be also nice to actually go back and take a look at where markets have not been as opened and see whether or not we can reverse some of those steps. For instance, there are a fair amount of export controls on medical devices, medical equipment, and pharmaceuticals that have been put in place since this crisis began by countries that are part of the G20. Maybe that's something that should be looked at. How do we make sure we try to at least have as free and flow of medical devices and proper pharmaceuticals so that we can work together again on a global way? So that may have been something that I would like to have seen kind of to your question, the United States over the last few years has put a fair amount of tariffs on China and to other countries, including on things like, well, medical devices and pharmaceutical issues. Those things seem to me to be something that it would be nice to lower some of those tariffs. And as I said in the piece that I put out, you can do it on a temporary basis. So if we lower some of those tariffs, if you're worried that you're going to lose your leverage from a trade negotiation standpoint, basically make it temporary on the theory that at least you're doing this to address a crisis. And so when the crisis is over, you can go back to a position that I personally don't agree with, but at least you're now basically handling it for a crisis situation, as opposed to the reason sometimes you put tariffs on for leverage. You don't need leverage right now. You need to cooperate. Exactly. And it doesn't seem like there's going to be any progress made on a trade front. So what's the deal? What's the benefit of having leverage in this situation anyway? That's correct. I mean, it's it's hard to think about doing trade negotiations at this moment in time. And instead, what we should be doing is trying to figure out how we can work better together. And if at a later date, when hopefully this crisis ends, and obviously we want that to end as quickly as possible, you need to go back to having your leverage, fine. I would suggest it's not necessarily good economic policy, but that is not necessarily the point here. The point right now is trying to figure out how do we cooperate together so that we can solve the problem at hand, which is a enormous health problem. Absolutely. Jumping slightly to fiscal stimulus, obviously the U.S. passed phase three now and is even starting talking about phase four. The G20 noted that they're injecting over $5 trillion collectively into the global economy as part of targeted fiscal economic measures and guarantee schemes to counteract the economic impact of COVID-19. I guess the way I read this is, and I want to ask you, is is $5 trillion enough? Um, obviously, $2 trillion is the phase three from the U.S. side, but how much more should we be expecting or what else do you think should be happening? So I think that it, it probably isn't enough, and that's not because $5 trillion isn't a substantial amount of money, because it clearly is, and $2 trillion in the United States is, a, you know, that's about 10% of GDP. So it's a large, large amount of fiscal positioning. Part of it is a fiscal, is the difference between a fiscal package and a fiscal stimulus. So 
not all $2 trillion of what the United States is doing is going to be stimulative necessarily. It's going to be helpful. And some of it's very, very important, especially basically helping out hospitals and healthcare issues or providing money for state and localities. I think some of the other countries that are part of the G20 have taken steps on fiscal issues, but they're probably going to have to take bigger steps. And we have not even started really getting into what's going to be happening in the emerging markets where you're going to have countries that are suffering from balance of payments problems and potentially from fiscal problems. And they're going to be needing to take fiscal measures of some sort as well to help their economies because their medical infrastructure is most likely going to be less advanced and less uh, coordinated than you see in some of the more developed countries. So is it enough? Almost assuredly, no. Is it a a really good step forward? Absolutely, yes. And so now it's kind of what next? And that kind of goes back to my earlier point, which was that's what I would have liked to have seen a little more from the G20 on. But I think it was good that they acknowledged, hey, we're trying right now on, on the fiscal side and there may be more to be done. Speaking of emerging markets, the last time you were on, we touched on the swap lines that the Fed had just recently announced. Then this week, we saw the Fed announce additional liquidity measures. Can you walk us through some of the differences between the swap lines and the Fed dollar facility and what impact those facilities are going to have now? So here's how I guess I would think about it. The Fed had basically redone its swap lines that they had put in place during the 2008-2009 crisis, and it did it in a very fast order. First, it did it with a number of developed countries, central banks, and then it expanded it to a few emerging market countries. So this last Tuesday, the Fed did expand FX swap lines to create this new repo facility. This is a new instrument that we will see how it works over time, but repo lines are essentially setting up a line so that if a country is sitting on reserves that include U.S. treasuries, they can actually repo those treasuries for cash with the Fed. So this could at least theoretically expand the dollar liquidity to countries beyond the countries that are in the FX swap lines. Now, it would suggest that those countries be sitting on some reserves because if they don't have adequate reserves, then they're, they're not going to have enough treasuries to basically repo them, excuse me, for, for dollars. Um, uh, the second thing is, is that I think that it is a positive step by the Fed, but it does go to uh, the p- other point that I was making, which is there's going to need to be more done with the IMF. So the IMF has has put out that it's going to be providing some liquidity, which are kind of along the lines of swap lines. Um, And then, you know, it's whether or not can the, is there going to fit, is the IMF going to be doing more lending using its normal procedures through the balance of payments operations that it uses? Or, is the IMF going to switch and start basically kind of lowering its conditionality and essentially turning in some of their resources into more of a liquidity lines for emerging markets? I think that's something that should be at least explored in the very near future. Great. Well, I found this conversation very helpful, Clay, and I know that our listeners will too. So I want to say thank you for joining us again. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. Up next, Deputy Chief Economist here at the Institute of International Finance, Alina Ribakova, is back for another episode, this time discussing South Africa following the Moody's downgrade over the weekend and the potential for an IMF program. Alina, thank you so much for joining the show again. Oh, thank you so much, Dylan. So 
we wanted to bring you back on to talk about South Africa, which is obviously in the news this week as they consider an IMF program. They had a uh, Moody's downgrade over the weekend. Um, But we've been talking about South Africa at the IIF for some time. We've done a bunch of analysis looking at vulnerabilities in emerging markets. And South Africa somehow always comes up at the top of the list, whether it be, you know, overvaluations in the currency or debt dynamics, anything like that. So can you kind of just walk the listeners through for people who haven't been paying as close attention to South Africa? What makes South Africa so vulnerable right now? The issues are indeed numerous. It has to do with external vulnerabilities as well as that dynamics. But most importantly, South Africa has struggled with almost a decade of macroeconomic mismanagement. And I think the recent political changes over the last couple of years are just taking time to unwind that institutional damage that happened. And I think that's what has led to very unstable debt dynamics. We have flagged that, as well as lack of adjustment on the external front. Exchange rate has weakened and we've flagged it as over valued. But nonetheless, current account deficits have remained sticky and they have been financed by short-term portfolio investment. The combination of this very sort of heavy reliance on short-term portfolio investment flows, as well as worsening debt dynamics in the middle of the current COVID crisis is just making it too much. I think, therefore, it's important that South Africa goes to multilaterals for support. So is this COVID-19 exposing kind of a pre-existing condition or underlying condition? Or is this more something that was bound to happen, you know, regardless of a global pandemic of this scale? I think South Africa was teetering on the brink for some time now. And you can see it in our publications flagging external vulnerabilities and more recently debt sustainability issues. We have run scenarios where even before COVID, South African debt could have worsened as much as almost 95% of GDP. That is clearly an underlying issue. I think COVID concerns have just tipped it over. The risk towards emerging markets have resulted in a sudden stop of capital flows. And on top of that, recent lack of agreement on the adjustment measures for the budget, especially resistance from the unions, has just made it too much. And the topping it off is the downgrade by Moody's last Friday to the sub-investment grade. Yeah, diving into the debt dynamics a little bit, one of the most interesting things across emerging markets that I've been watching, something that I keep coming back to is this problem of state-owned enterprises really weighing on the sovereign balance sheet, right? So if you look at something like Pemex in Mexico, for example, but in South Africa, there's ESCOM and there's South African Airways and a number of other state-owned enterprises. Can you kind of walk us through their situations and how they impact the sovereign? Oh, thank you very much, Dylan, for asking this question. Indeed, at the IF, we have looked at the SOE debt systemically, uh, our colleagues in the policy department, and also we have looked at the SOE debt individually by country. This is so unfortunate where the whole population is paying for a few mismanaged state-owned enterprises. I think South Africa and indeed Mexico are very important examples. In South Africa, SOE debt is more than 10% of GDP. And it's adding heavily to the debt dynamics, but also to the direct support. Most of the increases in spending over the last few years in South African budget have been to support ESCOM, which has become an unviable entity. We have also seen South African Airways going into the rescue procedure, and we're also likely to see other SOE companies coming back to the budget. SOE reform is necessary. I think South African authorities are beginning to realize that. But unfortunately, resistance, especially from the powerful unions, is just very strong. You mentioned how much the SOEs weigh on the budget. The budget was obviously a big issue in South Africa at the beginning of this year. But then it seemed that the budget last month was relatively well received by the international investor community. Can you walk us through kind of why that changed and you know what to look for on the budget going forward? 
The budget is indeed a very big issue in South Africa. And uh, the medium-term budget framework that came out in October last year managed to scare investors so much that even the somewhat sort of lukewarm improvements in the budgets in February managed to stabilize the market. Unfortunately, since then, we haven't seen an agreement between the authorities and public sector unions on the adjustment to their wage bill. And that is critical to make budget work going forward. So what we need to be watching out for, for any sign of agreement or compromise between unions and the authorities on the wage adjustment. Wage increases for the public sector, but also for for some other powerful unions, have been way in excess of inflation in recent years. And there is no clawback. So it means when the actual inflation is much lower, thanks to the credibility of the central bank, we do not see any changes to this wage agreement. Wage agreements are set for three years. They work for everybody who participates in that union. And it is very important for maintaining fiscal sustainability. Presumably, the wage increases and some of the more political sticking points are something the IMF would prioritize in a program. Is that right? Absolutely. I think the key issue right now for South Africa in terms of going to the IMF is exactly the debt sustainability together with the pressure on the exchange rate. Despite credibility of the Reserve Bank, which cut rates, we have seen almost 300 basis points widening on the cost of borrowing for South Africa. So the IMF presence by itself would help calm down the market somewhat. And then it will also should help to give extra money on the social spending because COVID will be an important shock for the budget and we need to provide support for those in need. On the other hand, misallocation of resources, for example, some of these wage agreements or waste at ESCOM would definitely be at the center of any IMF program. That makes a lot of sense. Alina, one last question before I let you go. What should our listeners be looking for for signs of improvement in the weeks or months ahead? What would be something that makes you think that South Africa might be turning a corner? We'll definitely be watching out for any signals from multilaterals from the World Bank and the IMF in terms of approaching and discussions with the authorities. And then we'll also be looking for signs of better allocation of resources. South Africa has limited resources. It needs to support those most in need, but we also need to cut spending on the wasteful SOEs. Great. Alina, thank you again for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation and I think our listeners will as well. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thanks for joining us this week. And thanks once again to my colleagues, Clay and Alina, for sharing their insights. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. 